You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the College Info Geek Podcast. Today, we are on episode 19 of the show, about 13 months since the original episode came out. So I'm really excited to see the podcast still going strong. And today I'm bringing you an interview with a guest who I've wanted to bring onto the show for a long, long time. So I'm very excited to get past this intro and into the actual meat of the episode. Today, my guest on the show is Benny Lewis. Benny is the founder of FluentIn3Months.com, which is probably the largest general language learning site on the internet. It gets hundreds of thousands of visitors a month, and Benny has been helping thousands and thousands of people to learn languages, even though they're not children or in school anymore. And in fact, as you'll see in this interview, um, Benny shows us that adults are actually better language learners than children are by default. But we have a lot of things that kind of get in the way and make us think that it is harder to learn languages once we've grown older. So if you are someone who wants to learn a new language, who maybe has aspirations to travel to a new country, get an internship abroad or study abroad, or just wants to be bilingual for personal reasons or, you know, another reason, like for me personally, I have Japanese because I want to be able to read manga and talk to Japanese people and watch anime and things like that. Whatever your language learning aspirations are, this interview is going to help you a lot. So I'm really excited to get into it. And one last thing before I get into it, um, Benny actually has an, a new book coming out. Uh, he had an ebook that he self-published, but this is actually his first real published book that will be on bookshelves, which is kind of making me a little jealous because I have aspirations of writing a book one day as well. But Benny's actually done it. And his book is aptly called Fluent in Three Months to match his blog title. So if you're someone who's looking to learn more about how to learn a language and how to build the foundation that will help you actually dive into a course and not fizzle out um, halfway into learning, then that book is coming out in mid-March. I'll link to it in the show notes and you can check it out and see if you can use it. And I think my phone just rang, but I'm not going to care about that. Um, last thing, show notes for this episode are at sigpodcast.com. That is cigpodcast.com. If you click the episode link for 19, then you'll get all the notes and things that I've mentioned in the show that I would say I said I was going to link to. So if you're interested in that, head over to the blog and you'll find all those goodies there. Um, and the only other thing that is, if, if you like the show and you want to see it grow and continue, then please head over to iTunes and subscribe and then leave a rating and review. Give me an honest feedback. Let me know what you think. I would really like to know what you think of the show. Give me any tips for improvement. And also that rating helps to bump the show up in rating in the rankings on iTunes and get it out to more people. So um, that's all I have to say about that. Without further ado, let's get into this interview with Benny Lewis. I'm once again with my co-host Martin from the last episode. So we both got some great questions for Benny and he has some awesome answers for the both of us that I think you're going to love. So let's get into it. All right, welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. Today, I am once again joined by my co-host, Martin Bamey, and Yo. we are talking to Benny Lewis from FluentIn3Months.com. A language hacker has been traveling the world and teaching people how to learn languages even after their school years are over uh, for a long time. So welcome to the show, Benny. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on and talking to us today. So I would really like to get into um, 
how you got your site set up and how you've been traveling the world for so many years. But first, I think the first thing that comes to mind when people see your site is that that title, Fluent in Three Months. And running a college site, I have all these students listening that are probably taking foreign language courses that last either a semester or a year long, and they see this Fluent in Three Months uh, tagline. So what does Fluent in Three Months mean? Can you actually become fluent in a language in three months? And is does that kind of uh, negate all the semester-long classes and year-long classes? Well, keep in mind, a semester-long class will be whatever it is, um, three or four hours of lessons a, a week. Um, you know, if you're taking it as a minor and if it's a major, a few hours a day, uh, not so intensive. So um, I took German for five whole years in high school. And at the end of it, I could barely, I actually went to Germany briefly and I couldn't even uh, buy a train ticket. Wow. So I know I know all about spending many years learning a language and having nothing to show for it. So the reason it's not that um, it's it's kind of the approach that is used in traditional and mostly academic learning environments is they try to teach you the language like it's a list of information. You have to uh, memorize vocab lists and learn grammar rules and then you'll be able to speak the language. And that's it seems logical enough. But the catch is that's that's not what the way it works. It's not like history where you're absorbing facts. A language is a means to, of communication. So you have to get into communicating in the language. So what I found is you can get very far in just a few months if you have an extremely different approach to it, which is not based on memorization and doing exercises, but on communication. So on day one, you start using the language, even though um, uh, your university professor's head would melt if he heard all the grammar mistakes you're making. Uh, that's quite all right. I go out of my way to speak like Tarzan when I'm starting any language. And the point is I'm getting uh, I'm conveying my message. So rather than waiting until I can say, excuse me, kind sir, could you direct me to the nearest bathroom? I would just go up and say, bathroom where because that is the same amount of information it's not proper use of a language but that is something that you can use right now if you know just two words and when you start that way you can communicate very quickly and then it's a case of making less and less mistakes with time so within a few months you're just you're communicating with very few mistakes it's not that you've mastered the language it's not that you're speaking it perfectly but within three months, you can reach a stage that I would equate to social fluency, so or social equivalence, equivalency. So if you're, if you imagine, imagine the kind of conversations you have at a college party. You're not generally debating Kantian philosophy. You're just hanging out with your with your friends and talking about the game last night, or if they want another drink. And and most conversations we have are at this level, and you can reach that level in a few months, even if reaching a more professional level where you want to work as an engineer in the language or something takes a bit more time. So people need to kind of have a halfway point. And if you do it over a very intensive period, so if you're willing to put in several hours a day, then you can make progress quickly. If you can only put one or two hours in a week, then in three months you could get by as a confident tourist, but you wouldn't get fluent. It really requires an intensive investment. Okay. And in your experience, have you found that if you practice less per day, 
Is the cumulative effect um, less than if you were to put a lot of focus into it over a smaller period of time? Uh, yes, but then there's another catch that if you do it too much, you can um, overwork yourself. So I've actually had projects where I have put in eight plus hours a day. Um, I can do I could do this for like five or six days in a row, and then I I just can't do anything. It's all in one ear out the other. So there is a balance to strike, but I think most people should be able to uh, do it for a full day for several days in a row. And then maybe take the weekend off and then get back into it again, you know? Okay. But obviously that that's not possible for most people. I imagine most people listening, they are already doing a full-time course, so it's not as much of an option for them. But something to consider is that people have way more free time than they let on. So if you, if it was something you were extremely passionate about to speak a given language, then maybe you could sacrifice your favorite TV program because that's at least an hour a week. Maybe you can go to the bar with your friends to speak English with them maybe once a week rather than three or four times a week. Um, you know, maybe there are other things you can do to waste less time. Other ways you, other hobbies you have, you can put on pause. And people can find the time. I actually worked a 63-hour week job once when I was in Italy, and I still found the time uh, to learn Italian, which I was not using in, uh, at my job. So you can make the time no matter what your situation is. Yeah, I definitely agree. Wow. I also agree that, um, at least for me, if you put too much time into it, you can get burnt out as well. I know you were putting a lot of hours into learning languages at some point. Did Ooh. you have a negative experience with that too? Yeah, last semester was terrible. Chinese and German at the same time, along with mm -hmm. a job and several other courses. It was It was bad. Yeah, generally I wouldn't learn two languages at once because I, uh, for several reasons. I mean, there's the chance that one will blur into into the other. You learn the word for house in German, then you learn it in Chinese. Uh, especially when you're dealing with similar languages, they really start to blur together. But the other one is focus. Because, um, like for instance, I was learning Japanese. That's been my most la my latest project. And I made a little, I made a, a pretty big mistake in this project, um, which unfortunately was unavoidable. But I am launching a published book across two continents. And it turns out that, that running a, launching a published book uh, with major publishers and with lots of marketing is a huge amount of work, which Weird. I was not expecting. Um, and this has taken over a little bit of my time with Japanese. And it's it's like I always tell people, focus is the key. If I, if I was doing nothing but learning Japanese, I'd have no excuses, and I would have uh, made lots of progress. But um, unfortunately, the the book stuff and final editing and all that took over. So this is why I tell people, you know, if possible, if you're learning a language, that should be the only thing that you are doing. If you can press pause on all your other projects. Um, you know, don't learn a language the months leading up to your final exams. Don't learn a language when you're also looking for a job and trying to change your entire life. Um, and this is why learning a language while you travel is actually a pretty bad idea, because when you're traveling, you have so many logistical things to worry about. You have to adjust to a local culture. This is why I tell people Take a few months before you travel, make it your absolute priority to learn that language. You can practice it every day over Skype. And then when you arrive, you'll hit the ground running. And I've done that before in the past, and it's worked out great. 
Um, but like I said, if you try to do too many things at once, like I personally would not try to learn two languages at once. What I do do is I maintain several languages at once. Because when you reach a certain level, then maintaining that language is just practicing it. And it's not very taxing on your brain. So you can do that following it up by doing another language. So this is why I actually do speak several languages and I speak them uh, very often. But it's because I'll only do that when I have learned them to a certain degree. Okay. That's a that's a great tip. And honestly, I think the, the idea that you need to focus on one specific project or as few specific projects as you can at a time really applies to most everything that you do that requires a lot of creative thought or a lot of learning work to do. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you do get burned out and you are actually a lot less likely to progress in what you're doing. So one thing you touched on um, was that you shouldn't travel to a new country to learn a new language. And that brought to mind a question that I had for you, which is, you do all this kind of work. You're, I mean, you're working on a published book. You have to write blog posts, probably email with tons of people, and do all your language study. And you're also traveling the world all the time. I know from my experience in Japan that when you travel to a new country, there are no habits. Like every mm-hmm. single new thing is a decision. Where do I go to eat? How, do, how am I going to sleep tonight? So like, how do you get work done and stay productive in the chaotic environment of, of travel? Well, travel in itself is a major project. And this is why I tried to learn all my language before I came. Because while I've been, I've been, I've been having a great time traveling all over Japan, but there are just so many things, like you said, you know, where am I going to eat and what am I going to do today? Uh, things to, to worry about that you just, you don't have time to take on a new project. And this is why I say when you are already good at something, you can do many things at once. Um, I would not say that you can only ever do one thing at a time in your life, but I think you can do multiple things at the same time if you're already good at them. So I have already, I I actually get over 1,000 emails a day. It's a ridiculous number uh, (laughs) because I got the biggest website for language learning and I get questions from people all around. I got like media requests and... uh, problems on my blog technical things i have to worry about uh emails back from accommodation i'm looking into so i I have so many emails but the thing is when i was starting to get too many emails to handle i took several weeks to create a system that works so i have a, a series of plugins that i use in gmail that help me kind of scope them over time i have um autofill things so when i get the same email I type two letters and a whole email comes out that's the same one I've dealt with before. So I have a very complex system. But I think coming up with that system while I was traveling or while I was studying or while I was doing anything else would have been too hard to handle. But the thing is now that system is pretty much on autopilot for me. That I can handle a huge quantity of emails um, because I've developed that skill. So it means now that I'm traveling and I have that to worry about, I can keep that maintenance of that um, email handling up. And it's the same with when I was in university. Uh, There were many things I wanted to do, but first I had to focus on creating uh, or getting into a system that worked for me to be able to study well and pass my exams. And when I had that down, then I started to do other things like attending clubs and uh, making being more outgoing and more social. And I think um, you can do many things. And I do juggle quite a lot. I do write many blog articles, I edit a lot of videos, I answer my emails, um, I do interviews like this, 
And that's a lot to handle. But the thing is, I learned each one separately, once at a time. I gave it my focus. And when I got good at it, then I can do that at the same time as other things. That's a great idea. Yeah, becoming an expert in something really helps you to kind of put your focus on the things that you're not quite as good at. So you were talking about your experience in university and getting good at certain things. And that kind of reminds me, I want to talk about your actual experience in college, since we are on a college Mm -hmm. podcast. Um, I know that you didn't learn Spanish, which was your second language, until you graduated and actually moved to Spain. So, Mm -hmm. But you took German in high school, and I had sort of the same experience as you. I took Spanish for four years, learned almost nothing, and then didn't take a foreign language class at college. So did you kind of just kind of give up on the idea of learning a new language when you were in college, or was it just kind of uh, not a big focus? Or do you even think that... I had given up. I had given up. My my experience in high school had essentially convinced me that I didn't have this language gene and that it was just impossible and that my stamp for life was English speaker to the day I die. And that was just a fact of life. And that, that actually came with me. So when I moved to Spain, I had six whole months in Spain with the exact same mentality. So six months of living in the country still meant I couldn't speak Spanish. And this is another reason why I tell people moving to the country will not solve your problems. There's nothing in the air that's going to make you speak Spanish, you know. So um, what changed was a lot of mentality stuff because it's it's not just the technique. Yes, there are great techniques to learning vocabulary and being more imaginative to using your sentences and uh, extrapolating what the other person says, which is very important to make it two way. But a lot of it was just very simply accepting that it's okay to be a beginner because ultimately what we all want when we started to learn languages, we want to be fluent. We want to be able to have deep conversations in the language. That's, uh, that's the, the goal ultimately. And when we start and our, we take 10 minutes just to explain what we do for a living uh, or that we're a student, just uh, like forgetting the word for student and uh, these first conversations you would have them and think to yourself, oh, man, I'm never going to reach this, this stage if I don't even know three words yet. And then you give up. So what, what I decided to do was to embrace being a beginner, be OK with being a beginner, try to enjoy having these conversations where I'm basically just saying, explaining my hobbies and having kind of boring, superficial chats. And then when you're OK with that, you can go to the next stage, which is ever so slightly higher and the next stage and the next stage. But if you're all about fluency or bust, then it's going to be frustrating. You can get there as long as you're okay with taking steps up the ladder, you know? Okay, so really that that great mental shift was being okay with making mistakes, being okay with knowing for quite a while that you're going to be at a beginner level. Now, I know you Precise. started learning high sc- or Spanish in high school, so was that okay. kind of your mentality from the start, or how did you go about learning it and being successful? What I did was... I was taking it for a requirement, and then I failed the first year because I didn't understand my teacher's accent to the point that I mm-hmm. didn't know we had assignments. I had a zero. So I just I had to drop the course, and then I came back, and my advisor suggested that I take the easier Spanish teacher, and some ounce of rebellious pride within me said, no, I'm going to take the hard one again. And then I started becoming good at it because I wanted to prove that I could, and mm-hmm. then I started to like it, so... So there was probably a little bit of that. I'm I'm going to be okay with being bad for a while because I'm very determined to oh, yeah. to be good at this hard class and eventually overcome it. Yeah, exactly. Because I knew that 
my track record was pretty terrible at that point. Okay, so I know that you moved from, you went to school in Ireland, right? Yeah, that's right. And then you got your first job out of college in Spain. Um, mm-hmm. I just recently got a, an email from a reader who really was interested in finding internships abroad in different countries. And I figured since that was your first job out of school, do you have any tips for students that are looking to go abroad, find jobs that are actually paid? And also, do you think it is easier for someone within the European Union to do it? Or is it also doable for American? Uh, well, the European Union does have many programs that help you do this. And uh, we actually have a wonderful program called Erasmus, which lets people take their third year of university abroad. And okay. it counts. So they actually go straight from that third year back home to their fourth year. And it's great for inter-European stuff. But for Americans and internationally, if anyone listening is either an engineer, an engineering student or an architecture student, I would recommend the same program that I used, which is EISTE. I think it's spelled uh, I-A-E-S-T-E. And that is an international program, definitely covers America and everywhere else. And it sends you to a list of many countries all around the world to have an internship as an engineer or as an architect. And that is what I got in Spain. And um, I imagine a language requirement would, or having language skills would be an advantage, but I didn't. So it was okay for me to go and speak English uh, at the internship that I got. Otherwise, it would really depend on your undergraduate degree. So if you're doing an undergraduate in computer science, you might want to see are there computer-related internships in various countries. And then just um, the best thing by far is to take the initiative yourself and maybe just cold email or cold call companies and say, look, do you need help or can I... Um, go over there. The catch is internships are just as popular in Europe as they are in America, uh, but many places have unpaid internships. Okay. So you do it exclusively for the work experience. So I actually got an internship very easily in Germany and it's on my resume. It's a great job as an engineer. This was the first time I went to Germany. And I did not know any German. Like, I taught my German from high school with help. It didn't. And I was there for just a month. But it was a great learning experience. But they did not pay me a cent. So if you can save up a little bit of money and you're you're, uh, flexible with that, and it's all about your resume, you could take just one or two months and work for free. Um, You know, you could do some side job in the States in advance and then go over. Because it's not as um, frequent to, to get a normal wage in, in many countries as an intern. And sometimes the wage is pretty pathetic. I, I had an internship in Paris, which was um, a kind of entry-level job, and they only paid me a 1,000 euro a month, which in Paris is a miserable wage. That, that'll that barely cover your accommodation and food. So That um, sounds like a lot here. <laughs> yeah, but in, in Paris, Paris yeah. is very expensive. So, Definitely. Uh, but then again, this, um, another mistake that I made that I can highly recommend other people do not make is if you want to go abroad, then spread out your possibilities. If you want to learn French, do not go to Paris. There are so many wonderful places you could go, uh, small towns or lovely cities on the coast or in the south of France where everyone's very, very nice. In Paris, they have a little less patience, especially with French learners. 
But so many cities in France are wonderful, such friendly people. And because there are a lot less foreigners going there, there are a lot more job opportunities. Mm. Um, another thing to consider is that you may want to just teach English. And I got English teaching jobs very easily in many countries. It did not help my resume, but it helped me learn the language. And then I, when I could speak the language, I could apply to work as an intern. And I did that a couple of times. Um, so there, there are a host of many possibilities, but like I said, it depends on the undergraduate. Great. And you actually didn't, didn't you study Japanese in Brazil for a while? Was, uh, was that the case? Or no, uh, I was learning most of my Japanese in Spain last That's year. Right. Yeah. And so I did that intensively over the internet. So I would get on Skype every day and chat to people, um, via Skype for practice and I reached about a two-month stage uh, of, like, doing pretty well. And then the book stuff kind of overwhelmed me. So I didn't get to do my three months, but I learned in those two months a lot of stuff that has made this trip in Japan much more pleasant. Okay. So that's not really a case where you could go to a different country to speak or to work and speak in that language. But I'm sure there are probably opportunities out there to do just that. If you want to learn Spanish, you don't have to go to Spain. If you want to learn French, you don't have to go to France. That kind of yeah. thing. And something uh, people forget is um, if you want to learn French, for instance, that there are actually quite a lot of countries in Africa where if you were to, uh, to save just a couple of thousand dollars, not, not a lot, just like work intensively at something back in the States, that couple of thousand dollars could set you up for six months in like Tunisia or and various other countries in Africa that speak French. And it's something people don't really consider, that if you go to Europe, if you go to France or Spain, um, it's expensive, you know? Uh, whereas there are many countries you can go to where you can take advantage of the currency differences, and you don't even have to work. You could do something like be a volunteer and have a, an interesting experience at that, or just travel the country, or, work, like I suggested, work as an intern for a low wage, not really worrying about the wage itself. Um, you can take advantage of currency differences. All right. Well, arbitrage for the win. So did you have a question that you wanted to ask? I did. It came back. So you've gone through, you've learned tons of different languages and gone through and became fluent or to whatever level you wanted. And I remember reading that you don't, you don't keep them all. What? do you do to decide which languages you want to keep? Is it, are you playing favorites or is there a pragmatic approach? Like, I'm not going to use this language very often. How do you do it? Uh, it's actually not so pragmatic because uh, it's, it's all about my experience with the culture. So I actually do not feel that I learn languages. I learn gateways to cultures. So, um, like, for instance, I was learning Arabic and I had a great experience doing that. And it ultimately led to me being able to travel to Egypt. And that was fantastic. But at the end of the day, I don't see myself living in a Muslim country and I don't see myself speaking Arabic on a day to day basis. So I decided that as great as the experience was, I am not going to maintain Arabic because it's a lot of work to maintain a language. And I'm not that passionate to move back to um, an Arabic-speaking country. Whereas I go back to Spain all the time, and I go to France and French-speaking Canada, and all these other languages that I, I like to visit the country or the culture, 
Um, and there's some languages that I just happen to like, and they may not be pragmatically uh, spoken by a lot of people, like Irish, which I, uh, you know, the national language of Ireland or Gaelga. Um, in terms of numbers of speakers, Arabic is way more pragmatic to maintain than Irish. Mm, of course. But for me, I'm more passionate about Irish. It's my culture. It's my background. Uh, so uh, if you don't have a passion for the language, and I, th I feel people who, learn, who say, I want to learn Chinese because Chinese are going to take over the world and everyone's going to speak Chinese. I'm like, <laughs> this is dumb because this, this is a, there are, there's zero passion in that explanation. That someday China is going to be our overlord or so, whatever, <laughs> you know, ex explanation people want. That, that's not a good reason to learn Chinese. A good reason is that you are passionate about Chinese culture. You're passionate about visiting China. You're passionate about maybe a Chinese girlfriend you might have. You're passionate about so many things. And the number of speakers is irrelevant because um, ultimately you are not going to speak to that many people. So Irish, which only has uh, 300,000 speakers, uh, for me, is way more relevant than Arabic, which has a multitude more speakers. Because if I was to spend every day of my life speaking for just a half an hour to every Irish speaker, I still would not reach those 300,000 people. Whereas with Arabic, I don't, I'm just simply not going to travel to every single village and every single street to speak to every single person. So the numbers game just it's absolutely irrelevant you know and actually the smaller languages can give you better career prospects because less people happen to speak them that's uh better in so if uh, people are looking into translation for instance you can be a better paid translator by having a more rare language combination because there's a lot less of you whereas if you want to be a spanish translator then because there are so many people you have way too much competition to deal with so you're kind of you're less interesting to to employers. So I would pick languages that you are passionate about, and then you will learn it a lot easier. But if you're learning language just because you have to, and you don't have some kind of intrinsic, you know, I'm going to push myself, or I'm passionate about it, then you're more likely to fail. And that that's a great way to look at it. And I'm sure it's a great relief to a lot of listeners because I've met a lot of people who are very passionate about a language. But then their family, their friends, don't do that. You're wasting your time. Why are you mm -hmm. learning Esperanto? It doesn't even have an official country or whatever. But if you're into it, yeah. if you want to speak to people. And that also, the cultural thing you mentioned reminds me, I had another question I want to ask. And it's, do you have a favorite little cultural quirk or surprise you've gotten in your 10 plus years of travel where you were just like, that? that is really awesome. This country will now be one of my favorites because of this experience. Mm -hmm. I have quite a lot of them. I lose I lose track very quickly. But um, a single example, I actually wrote a blog post about like 23 weird habits I picked up in 23 different countries. Um, my One of my favorite countries is Brazil for many, many reasons. But one thing I really like is how warm they are. So if you're speaking to a Brazilian, a major difference between Brazilian culture and let's say American culture is I found when I'm in America, because like Europe, we tend to be a little bit closer, not not as close as South America, but a little bit closer than America. So a weird thing I see when I'm in America at a, let's say a party, and I'm talking to somebody, I notice the conversation always moves in the direction I'm looking. Because I always just feel we're a little too far away and I'll step in closer. 
and then that person is thinking, oh my God, he's invading my personal bubble, and they'll step backwards. <laughs> and it's two completely different perspectives. And Brazil, for me, was a step further, because they're so warm that when they are speaking to you, they need to be physically touching you. So if I was talking to you right now, my hand would be on your shoulder, you know? Or if, if you kind of look away for a second, then I, I grab you to, to hold on to your attention. And uh, if you are someone who's afraid of personal contact, you may not like this, but I think it's a very affectionate way of, um, of making sure you're talking to that person. It's very direct. I really like that. Um, but there's so many aspects of various cultures. It'd be impossible for me to list one thing that I, I particularly liked. Um, but there are, there are just endless quirks everywhere you go. Awesome. That is one great reason to travel. So I really like what you said that you don't learn languages, you learn gateways to cultures. And it really reflects on my experience because I wanted to learn Japanese because I love Japan. I've been there twice mm -hmm. and it's an amazing country. And people would always say, oh, you should learn Spanish first or something. And you'll know, get your language learning chops on an easier language before moving into something with three different syllabaries and 5,000 kanji to learn. And I've made some pretty good progress in Japanese without knowing any other languages. But I'd like to ask mm -hmm. you, do you think there are any languages that are too hard to jump into from another one? Uh, should you like learn Esperanto or, or Spanish or something first to kind of get the your brain wired to learn languages before you jump into a harder one? Or can you jump into any? Well, it's a tricky question because I feel if you're uh, going via an easy language that you're not passionate about, then you may fail with that project, even though you would theoretically do better with the supposedly harder language. And um, that's the problem is like, you know, most people would learn Spanish first, even if they in the States, even if they're not passionate about it. And when it doesn't work out, then they say, oh, I'm just bad at languages. Even if they were to learn Japanese or Chinese or Arabic or whatever language they are uh, passionate about, they may actually get further quicker. Now, having said that, uh, there was a study done by, I think, a Dutch or a Swedish university that showed that when people learn Esperanto, the invented language, when they learn that first, then uh, what they did was they had a group of students learn just French for two years and a separate group, is, and they were the control group, and the separate group learned uh, Esperanto for one year and then French for only one year after that. So they had spent less time learning French. They did better in every possible exam than the, the students who had spent more time learning the language that they were examined on, you know? So the reason is because when you're learning any language, you do have a lot of things to, to juggle. You have a lot of grammatical features, maybe a different writing system, maybe tones, maybe whatever it is. Uh, these things are going to slow you down. So if you learn an easier language, you get over one of the biggest problems in language learning, and that's just accepting that you can use different words for different things. It's a huge mentality shift to discover that rather than, say, um, the, word, the English word for house, that you can say casa. And that that's just the word for house. It, it's not the Spanish way of saying house. It is just the word for that thing that you go into at the end of the day, you know, and that that it sounds so obvious, but that little shift where you just accept that is the word that's you see the object and the, the word casa comes to your to your mind that that takes some getting used to. And I find if you can get over that first, you can get over the fact that it's OK for 
a different language to come out of your mouth, then things get easier after that. So what I advise people to do is uh, a nice little, um, not it doesn't consume so much time, is I tell people, why not learn Esperanto intensively for just two weeks? Not for years, but just two weeks, learning that language, the easiest language, it was designed to be the easiest language in the world, and then go online to Esperanto chat rooms, there's one at Lernu, L-E-R-N-U.net, and just try to use the language of people. You won't master the language, but you will start to see what it's like to use a foreign language, and then you'll pick up some skills. You'll see, oh, I shouldn't have done this, or I should have done that, and you see a process. I mean, I give loads of tips for people, but I don't feel that my way is the only way to learn a language. There are different ways depending on your priorities. Like, I have particular advice if your priority is spoken, but so many, many other people have more of an interest in reading. So my advice would be terrible if you wanted to learn to read manga, comics, you know. Um, so there are other approaches, but you, if you start off with the first language and kind of see where you fail and wh what you could do better and get used to a language coming out of your mouth that's not your native tongue, then after that you, you do have a major head start. So it could chop, those two weeks could chop months or years off of your next language learning project. But having said that, I think learning like Spanish to learn Japanese is not so wise because then Spanish has extra complications. And if you just don't care about Spanish, you may fail at learning that language, not because it's hard or because you're dumb, but because you don't care enough. Whereas if you just go straight into Japanese, if you care about Japanese or Chinese or a supposedly hard language, just learn it. Uh, with the relative difficulty is irrelevant. If Spanish is supposedly easier, who cares? That's like, that's like me saying I shouldn't learn how to play chess because learning how to ski first is perhaps easier. It's, it's totally irrelevant. Right. Just do what you want to learn and stick to that. Forget what's easier or harder. You've got a project you want, just take it on. Okay, awesome. So the concept of learning Esperanto brings to mind another question that I've had. Uh, about the differences between learning languages as a child and learning them again as an adult. But I think I would like you to take this one because you had the experience of the classmate who was bilingual by birth and then had trouble with semantics learning a third language. So, I mean, can you kind of explain what happened there? Uh, yes. I was taking a, one of my first French courses when I came here to the university. And there, I had a few Puerto Rican friends who grew up speaking English and Spanish. And what I found was, since I learned Spanish afterward as an adult, and I've had to put all this effort into it, that there were connections in French, like grammatical similarities, that they wouldn't see, even though I was comparing them to Spanish. And I think that's because, in my mind, I had to make those connections as an adult, where for them, they just think that way already. They didn't mm -hmm. teach themselves that, really. They don't remember learning Spanish. So I think that there may be an intrinsic advantage to learning as an adult, that teaches you how to learn in general. And yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. It's uh, if you grow up bilingually, then that's great that you'll speak two languages wonderfully, but you still don't know what it's like to learn a foreign language because exactly. you've never you've never actually learned a foreign language. You've just grown up speaking two languages and learning a, learning a foreign language, whichever it may be, is a skill. And when you've learned when you have done that once, then it becomes easier the second time. And this is why, um, why for you it would have been easier to learn French because you would have already had learned Spanish. Um, 
And I, I have seen this quite a lot. I, rem I remember when I, uh, actually just a few months back, I was in uh, Spain and I went to an Erasmus party, that exchange thing I mentioned, and I met a bunch of Italians. And I, I found it so fascinating that they could not understand words that were almost exactly the same in Spanish and Italian. Like the, the words were very similar to be one tiny difference. And I would translate the word to them. I would like literally say it the same, but change the, the code to a chi where every other part of the word would, would be different or would be the same. And they were like, oh, I, they sound completely different to me. And, and that's the thing is you, to, because to they, they grew up thinking the only way to pronounce this word is this way. And even if something's slightly different, it's still very, very hard to get used to. So uh, if people pick up the skill and can do it once as an adult, they can do it better. And it turns out I, I, there was a study done in the University of Haifa in Israel that showed that adults are actually better language learners than children. So this is counterintuitive because people feel, no, children learn languages better. But adults can reason better. And this means when you come to a grammar rule, uh, like I don't tell people to, to learn grammar from the start, but eventually you do uh, get further if you can learn structural grammar. Um, I, would, I would generally do it after I have some kind of flow in the language. But when you do that, adults are better at reasoning. I can see that oh, I have to use the plural conjugation here. Whereas a child would not think along those lines. They just need lots of exposure to naturally pick it, pick it up. And they do naturally pick it up uh, easier than adults. But that doesn't mean they'll pick up faster. Because if you can pick it up through reasoning, you can actually take over this natural absorption that a child may do. And people don't people don't kind of put that connection. They just think, oh, uh, picking it up if you're a child is better. So adults are crap language learners. But we have advantages that children don't. Right. I think children might have a kind of intrinsic start right out of the gate because they have nothing else in their lives that allows them to connect with people verbally. So it's kind of like a sink or swim thing. You know, they want to connect with other people. So they're obviously going to pick up a language and communication is just kind of part of being human. Whereas when you're an adult, you already know one language, you already have an yeah. ability to connect with the people around you. So learning another language at first is just work that doesn't seem as vitally important to basically existing. Yeah, a friend of mine, another language blogger, Katsumoto, um, he said once that babies aren't smarter than you. They just have no escape route. <laughs> so that's yeah. the difference is if I if I'm thinking I want to learn Japanese, but then I think, um, the latest episode of How I Met Your Mother is on. I'll watch that first. You, you know, then, then I'm escaping. I'm, I'm essentially going back to English mode. A baby can't do that. There is no other option. It's use this language or not be able to communicate that I'm hungry or not be able to tell my mother I've stubbed my toe. It, there, there are very crucial things, and it's about escape routes. And this is why if you can emulate that yourself, if you can make it so that you have no choice but to use the language, then that's great. And that, that's why sometimes immersion can be good by going abroad. But I think you can do this virtually. You can, uh, I like to schedule language sessions and then I, I, I'm, I've paid for them. So I have no choice but to do it. Otherwise, I'm throwing my money away. And this I have no I, I have kind of an artificially created lack of an escape route. And I have to use the language. 
That is, yeah, it's a great idea, and that works for any sort of thing where you would naturally want to escape. Just kind of build in some consequences that are more painful than than actually doing what you don't want to do. Yeah. So I, I love the the immersion thing, and having been to Japan twice, um, as long as you don't have a ton of work to do, then being immersed in the culture is really beneficial, and it was for me at least. Just having to talk to people at restaurants and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of students email me about how do I get the money to study abroad or should I study abroad or should I not? I never studied abroad, but I went to Japan um, with just one friend and kind of winged it. And I think personally, I I enjoyed it more than I think I would have with the study abroad program because I've heard that you're allow, you're around students of your nationality for most of the part. You speak in English if you're an English speaker and so on and so forth. Um, I don't, so you did study abroad. Were you with mainly English speakers, or were you kind of more immersed? And what would you recommend for a student learning? Well, learning when to I learn? went to Spain, when I went to Spain, uh, those six months that I did not pick up Spanish, mm. I was with mostly English speakers, and that's why I didn't mm. pick up Spanish. Uh, since then, I've never actually done a study abroad program because um, the internship was not language related; it was more work related. Okay. Um, but it's it's exactly like like what you said. It's um, you when you're when you have many English speakers around you, you're just going to speak in English. So it doesn't matter if you go to a village in the middle of a mountain uh, and thinking, okay, I'm far from the city, so I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna speak the language. It doesn't matter if there's one other English speaker there, you know. And I met somebody who managed to spend. Uh, six months in the middle of nowhere uh, thinking they would learn the language, but they met one other English speaker and it was done. (laughs) You know? And this is why I tell people you can't actually go to a major city. Um, Like, I generally think the second or third city tends to be a little bit better because uh, you still have lots of stuff to do, but maybe there's, it's less expensive and there's less likely to meet other English speakers um, but you can still go to a city and get fully immersed just by avoiding English speakers. So I would I would generally avoid English like the plague. When I'm fully immersed in a language, I would avoid um, parties with other foreigners. Uh, if some local comes up to me and tries to speak English with me, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I have a strict no English policy. Or one thing I did in Spain, a lot of Spaniards would come up and say, oh, I want to practice my English with you. Then I'd say, no problem at all. That'll be 40 euro an hour, please. <laughs> and that shuts them up very quickly. Yep. Um, because I, I just I was actually teaching English for less than that, but I was teaching English and I figured uh, that's work, you know. And um, you you really do have to cut English out of your life. Yep. And I bet as uh, an electronic engineer, you probably had people wanting to bum computer repair off of you as well. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I know I did. You can you can combine that and use it as more chances to practice the language. Like after I had traveled for a few years and I was starting to pick up languages quickly, if someone would say, "Oh, I want to practice English. Can I speak English with you?" I I remember the old adage, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll eat for the rest of his life rather than giving him a fish, whatever way it works. So I would explain to them how I recommend they would learn a language. I give them free language consultation, but I would do it in their language. Okay. And I felt I was helping them way more by explaining how they could speak English. I was giving them websites they could do it, telling them where are the expat communities that I tend to avoid, where they can go there to speak English. 
And I actually helped them with their English by giving them this information. But we still did it in the local language and I got a, a chance to practice. Right. So you're teaching them a system rather than just giving them a few minutes of, of practice kind of unstructured. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I heard of one of my friends knew a guy who lived in Tokyo for nine years and didn't learn Japanese during the entire time because he just hung around the expats. And that's that's kind of my my hesitation to recommend a study abroad for someone who really wants mm. to get culturally immersed because I just I think they're going to it's too easy to stick around your comfort zone when there's a bunch of other American students. Yeah, and the, another, another thing is if you're abroad, you, um, I mean, unless you end up working online or something, it's t it's generally a temporary experience. You may only be there for three months. Mm. So I think it's such a pity to go abroad and then spend most of that time studying um, and not experiencing the culture. And this is why I think it's so much better to do all of your work in advance. Spend the next year uh, you know, studying a little bit, but getting spoken pr practice on Skype, or maybe there's um, a foreign exchange program in the university that meet up every once in a while. Um, I know there were lo lots of Spanish students in my university that I could have met up with to get a head start on my Spanish. Um, so that when you go to my, my goal, whenever I arrive in a country is to do zero studying. And I, I'm only going to that country for practice and cultural immersion. I don't intend to ever open a book or do an exercise. That's the kind of stuff you should do back home because if you're only going to be in a country for three months or for even just a few weeks, you need, you need to make it count. And if you're locked in a dreary room with a dusty old book, that's not making it count. That's something you can do back home. Exactly. Awesome. So that leads into probably the final segment of this podcast, which I'm sure everyone is wondering about which is how do you actually immerse yourself in a language and start learning it when you're stuck back home and you're not mm. around a bunch of native speakers? And I think this will lead into your book as well because it's kind of the idea of you know how to learn languages, kind of get the system to start learning them even if you're not in the perfect environment to speak with native speakers. Right. Well, if this was like <clears throat> 20 years ago um, or even even 10 years ago, then I would say it would be a major problem to try to to immerse yourself in a language without going abroad. But nowadays, it's so easy. You have streamed radio that you could listen to all day long in every language in the world. Even in Irish, I've got like five or six different stations broadcasting 24 hours uh, in, in Irish. So I could listen to all day long if I wanted to. You have online newspapers. You have... Um, YouTube channels, you've streamed TV shows, you can download TV shows, you can get DVDs that are dubbed in other languages. So you can listen and watch whatever language you want nonstop all day long if you wanted to. Um, but the greatest thing of all is that you can get on Skype or Google Plus or whatever it may be, and you can talk with a native speaker right now directly without getting out of your the comfort of your bedroom. Just turn on the camera and talk to them. And if you can't afford to get private lessons, two things to consider. First is that you can get a free of charge if you teach them some English. And you don't have to be a teacher. You just give them practice. So get a language exchange for a half an hour, speak English to them, and then get a half an hour slot where they speak Japanese or Spanish or Italian or whatever it is to you. Um, and a good site for that is italki.com. That's just the letter I. Um, 
another option is to consider that maybe it's not that expensive because you can on the same site i talk i you can get private japanese and chinese lessons but japanese i was surprised at this you can get private lessons for five dollars an hour because this is someone yeah I was very surprised because Japan, is, and I'm seeing Japan is a very expensive country, mm-hmm. but there are still places that are not that expensive. There are small towns where $5 an hour, it's not a wonderful wage, but it's it's okay. And there are people who want to just get a bit of teaching experience. And for $5 an hour, you can get somebody one-on-one teaching you or speaking to you only in that language. So it's cheaper than you think. And uh, if you were to come to Tokyo to learn Japanese, it would be monstrously expensive because getting a private teacher here would be a problem. But if you do it on the internet, you've got the entire world. So I actually uh, managed to get Japanese lessons from somebody living in Thailand who was a Japanese native speaker, but they happened to be living in Thailand and that's why they could charge so little money, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was I was actually paying Thai wages even though it was um, for a language you associate with being more expensive. And it's the same for every language. You can get very, very cheap language lessons. And if you can't afford that, you can get private exchanges as long as you're willing to give them some English practice first. Definitely. Uh, I know of another site called Lang8, where yeah. uh, that's, it's kind of like italki. I think it's mainly Japanese and English, but they do have some other some of the languages represented. But I, I got on there. I wrote maybe one sentence in my journal, and, and within like two days, I had five Japanese friend requests all asking to Skype with me and exchange language practice. Yeah. So that's some awesome stuff. So Benny, you've got you've got fluentin3months.com with all this all these blog posts, lots of free advice on learning languages, and now you have the book by the same name coming out. And since your site isn't for one specific language, um, how is a book going to help somebody wanting to learn one specific language if it's a general language learning book? What is this book going to teach people? Well, the thing is, most people would think when they want to learn a language, the first thing I got to do is buy myself a Rosetta Stone course or something. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> that's a terrible idea for so many reasons. But one of them, I mean, one of them is just Rosetta Stone is not good. I've used it myself. <laughs> yeah. um, another one is that a course is not going to solve your problems because a course is essentially just a list of differences between English and that language. That's really all it is. It's like, here's a grammar point that's different. Here's how they say this word. But people don't need a course. They need an explanation on how they can use the language themselves. And this is universal. I've used this approach for anything from Japanese to Quechua, the Inca language, even to American Sign Language. The, The approach is the same if you're using what I like to call the communicative language learning approach where it's all about communicating in the language, using it, speaking from day one, finding native speakers, finding content to listen to online. This is universal, no matter what language you're learning. And once you have the approach, then a course is good, but a course should only be a small fraction of what you're putting your time into. You should be with a native speaker, face-to-face or over Skype, practicing the language. You should be listening to streamed radio, um, maybe writing on Lang8 or whatever other sites you find. Uh, there are so many things you could do which are all about how to get over the fact that you may think right now you're not a good language learner. And that's what the book's about. And that, that's universal for every language. And once you've gotten over that and you have an approach that works for you, 
you have a different um, mentality about the whole thing, then you can get a course, but you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars. A 10 or $20 book course will be more than enough. Awesome. And so this is your first book that is actually going through a publisher. So as a matter of personal curiosity, I know you've self-published before. What are the differences between going through a publisher? Have you found it to be a better experience so far? Or, uh... um, I can definitely say the future is self-publishing. Okay. But the reason I'm doing this traditionally published is um, because of a little bit more coverage. Mm -hmm. Like a self-published book is very unlikely to ever reach a physical bookshop in, uh, you know, bookstores like a Barnes and Noble or something. Right. And there are still, while people like us listen to podcasts and have websites and spend hours on Facebook, there are still people who are mostly offline creatures. They still exist. Mm -hmm. So... The um, I would like to get through to them as well. I've gotten through to many people through my blog, but there are many other people I can get through. Now, having said that, in terms of monetary return, it's it's a terrible idea because an author tip, typically gets like five to ten percent, ten percent maximum on each book sale, mm. and a book can only be like ten or twenty dollars. So you are earning around a dollar per sale. So you have to be selling. You're pushing quite a lot. You're pushing like 50 or 100 books a day just to start earning a decent living. Whereas with an ebook, I created a, a multimedia course. It was lots of work, but I could create that course and I could set a higher price point because I can set the price point that I want and I'm the distributor and all I pay is PayPal fees. So this meant that I only needed to sell one digital product a day and I'm covering all my expenses. You know, awesome. And you could do various levels, and you can write. It took. It was a six-week pro uh, pro um, project. I started one day saying I need to write an ebook. Six weeks later, it was out there, published, ready for people to buy, and um, you know, I could give them free updates and stuff. Whereas the published book has been an almost two-year process. It's very, very slow, but um, there are many advantages there to doing it either way but the thing is i think I'm, I'm glad i'm publishing now because i feel like it's going to go down and down and down until it suddenly becomes irrelevant so while it is still irrelevant i do want to use this means because uh i'm very lucky since i'm publishing with uh harper collins it mm. turns out that the publisher match up i have is perfect because collins are the ones who make all the dictionaries right. so they are very very attuned to language learning but i think in general there are not so many publishers who publish just one specific niche you know so uh, their passion to promote it would not be so big and uh, because collins are based in the uk i'm getting a lot more marketing push behind my book with them so it's going to be on bbc it's going to be on national tv i'm getting all this stuff that i did not have to arrange myself and that's great whereas in the u.s since uh, Harper One is not language specific, this is uh, one of many books they're publishing. So um, they're not putting as much work into promoting it. And I have to put a lot more myself. And the way I see if I'm going to be promoting it myself, an ebook would be just as good. If it's, if it's about earning a living, ebook all the way. I'm just doing it this way because uh, it's a means to get in on physical bookshelves. Uh, which I know will ultimately help people to learn languages. But um, 
even I, I think even if it's a bestseller, New York Times bestseller or something, I'm still not going to be earning enough to actually live off it. Right. But you're still going to get it out to a lot more people in this way. And I think yeah, that's precisely. a really beneficial thing because it, it's kind of like a, a system that really builds a great foundation for learning a language. And having known a lot of people who've gone out and bought a course or bought a textbook or just jumped right into some specific learning tool and, and quit after a while, I'm hoping that something like this is going to help kind of boost the success rate. Yeah. And, then, and the thing is, um, the one major difference is quality. Because my ebook, I had one guy proofread it before I, I started selling it. Whereas this printed book has gone through about 50 different eyes from start to finish. Every sentence has been rewritten to be improved. It's gone through the standards of Collins, which are like very serious language uh, publishers. So I feel like this is the highest quality thing I've ever produced. Whereas a blog post or even my ebook. It's just me kind of punching my keyboard for a few hours and then pressing publish, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I feel this this book is um, is is something that's more universally applicable, applicable and it'll be a much more pleasant read because of that. Awesome. Because there, there are still professional standards that uh, I feel are useful to follow. But, you know, with an, with an e-book, you could technically get that level of quality if you were willing to pay for like professional proofreaders and so on. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I even consider myself a pretty good proofreader, and then I find a, a typo in my blog post the next day. So yeah. having just extra eyes thrown over it is definitely a big help. Absolutely. Well, it's awesome. I've got my copy pre-ordered, and I'm very excited to read it. Uh, when is yeah, it coming out, by it. the way? March 11th. March 11th. All right. So, oh, yeah. Soon. Mm-hmm. Anyone out there looking to learn a new language, that would probably be a great starting point or somewhere to restart if you are uh, on a hiatus from your learning goals so yeah, right around the and, and if, oh. if people are uh, p- um pre-order a couple of, of copies then i got loads of extra material like travel tips and how to work online tips and other ebooks so people can check that out on the um giveaway page of my blog yeah and i, I saw one package that had a japanese pod 101 in there i've used them and they have some some great content uh, mm-hmm. i think i got one of their audio courses on audible and it was just awesome so yeah definitely some good stuff well, we are right around the hour mark, so I guess it's probably time to start wrapping up. But do you have any final questions you want to ask before we head off? I do not, but I would like to say I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks so much for talking to us. No, yeah, really so appreciate it. If uh, students listening to this want to connect with you online or find you online, where should they go? Uh, they can just go to fluentin3months.com or check me out on Twitter at Irish Polyglot. And then Facebook and Google Plus, uh, all Fluent in Three Months. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Benny. It's been great talking to you. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Benny Lewis, and hopefully you learned a thing or two about learning languages or maybe what it's like to travel and work in a different country. Uh, If you want to connect with Benny, as he said, you can go to fluentin3months.com. He's also Irish Polyglot on Twitter or the Fluent in Three Months on Facebook or Google+. Uh, He's on there and he's got some awesome stuff that he's publishing all the time so definitely check him out if you want to connect with me i'm tom frankly on twitter otherwise you probably know collegeofbookie.com is my home on the internet so check those places out once again if you like the show subscribe on itunes we got a lot more coming soon leave a rating and a review and leave me some feedback tell me what you liked and i will see you next time thanks for listening to the college info geek podcast 
grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.